wake up. We're here to hear the gospel. We're here to hear the word of God. And we're here to worship. And this should be a joyful thing. It should be an energetic thing. It should be a lively thing. And the text we have before us today is all of those things. And so we're going to continue in our study of the gospel of Mark. And we're asking this question, who is Jesus? Uh, It's the question that matters. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he said, Christianity, if, if false, it's of no importance. If true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. In Mark's gospel, it's a journey of discovering the answer, who is Jesus? And Mark doesn't hide this from us. It's the first sentence of his gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. But the remainder of his gospel is a journey into the implications of this answer and an observation of the people within his narrative struggling to make sense of this reality. In short, Mark shows us it takes time to figure out who is Jesus. And last week, you know, chapter 4, end of chapter 4, his closest followers, the 12, the apostles, they're finally asking the question, who is this then? Who is this Jesus? He has this uncommon authority. He just calmed an ocean and a hurricane with his words. Who is this? And that's an essential question to be asking, especially if you're going to be a, a sent one, an apostle who goes out into the world proclaiming this Jesus. But this week, another question emerges. What do you have to do with me, Jesus? It's a natural question to be asking. If this is who Jesus claimed to be, if he really is the Son of God, if he really can calm storms at his word, what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with you? So here's the big idea we're going to explore this morning. Jesus wants everything to do with you. So open your Bibles up with me to Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Uh, We're going to read verse 1 and 2, and then verse 11 as well. Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. A great herd of pigs was also feeding there on the hillside. Uh, Imagine an unclean place that you don't want to go. Public bathroom on Granville Street, uh, Denny's, uh, depths of a sewer system, being trapped in a hot room full of moldy cheese. Uh, I I don't know what it is for you. I'm just trying to get you there. And uh, for me, it's Anaheim, Saskatchewan, uh, population 218. It has a credit union and a school. That's it. But it was also surprisingly known once for a grand music festival. And back in my touring days, My band was booked to play the show, uh, but when we arrived, it was a pig farm. Like, quite literally, it was a pig farm. And for those of you who've been to a pig farm before, uh, you know they leave much to be desired. Uh, But this pig farm was uh, particularly problematic because no one was there for the festival because it turned out that a major drug bust had happened the week before because who knew that this little town was a drug capital of Canada? And, uh, And then there were pig hooves literally scattered Everywhere. It was very disturbing, and I do have photographic evidence. Uh, This is uh, me eating a pig hoof sandwich with my band, uh, but never going back to Anaheim, Saskatchewan. Now, imagine this, right? Hold that in your mind, something unclean, something you don't want to be at. The apostles come off of this boat. They're in the country of the Gerasenes. There's tombs, and there's pigs. It's the trifecta of uncleanliness. Uh, 
Uh, I can't think of anything worse for a Torah-observing, kosher-keeping Jew. Uh, they're in the Gerasenes. That's Gentile territory. In the, in the Jewish world, there were Gentiles, and ev- uh, which was everyone, and then Jews. Right? So they're in this area where they were trying to separate from these people. They, part of their mark of being God's people was being separated from the Gentiles. And then there's tombs. The place of the dead would have made them ritually unclean for at least a week, so they wouldn't have been able to worship in temple. And on top of it, there's pigs. Don't even get me started about the pigs. Filthy, unclean animals, forbidden to eat. You see, this whole scene to them is unclean. It's a place they would never want to be. It would have even been repulsive. There was no place for a Jewish person of their time. They would have even thought, this place, this place is too far gone for, for God. So after an overwhelming night on the sea, a brush with death, seeing Jesus do a miraculous feat, they arrive. But their welcoming committee isn't all that great either. You know, it's not uh, the ancient equivalent of someone with a tuxedo or, you know, they're not safely escorted to a a kosher-sensitive inn. Uh, This is a demon-possessed man. This is their welcoming committee, a man full of, emphasized, unclean spirits. There is no reason to get out of the boat for the 12. They had no desire to be in this place, and yet this is where Jesus brings them. And if we look at verses 3 through 5, uh, there's this absolutely heartbreaking scene. This man, he lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. See, this man, in a real sense, is the living dead. He was beyond any possible help. That's something Mark is trying to underscore here. Evil dehumanizes us. That's what it does. This man, he's been so dehumanized by evil to the point that people are treating him like an animal. They're binding him with chains and shackles, but it was of no help. Nobody had the strength to keep him subdued. It was all because of this supernatural power bestowed upon him by these demons. The BBC show show, uh, Luther has a character who's a psychopath. Her name's Alice Morgan. And uh, when I watched this series, uh, something she said uh, stuck with me. It was this. A black hole consumes matter and crushes it beyond existence. It's evil at its most pure, isn't it? Something that drags you in and crushes you into nothing. Something that drags you in and crushes you into nothing. The writers of this show, they're spot on. This is exactly what is happening here in this passage. The more that evil gives to you, the more it takes away. It ultimately crushes you. Uh, This man, he he gained great strength, untamable strength, strength like no other. But he also lost everything. He's so traumatized by evil that he's beyond help. He's been isolated in his suffering. He's been relegated to the place of the dead. He has no friends, no family, no relationship to society. He is as good as dead. And as a result, Mark tells us, he was always crying and cutting himself. Underscore that. Always. This man went to self-harm to manage his pain or to control it, or even to relieve it. You see, people cut themselves 
to distract from emotional pain or to feel in control over one's mind or body or to uh, punish oneself or to relieve tension or to numb oneself or to experience euphoria or to even have the opportunity to care for one's wounds. This is what this man is doing. And I need to stop here and say, if you're in pain and you're managing it by self-harm, please talk to us, talk to me. There will be no condemnation. There will be no shame cast towards you. Uh, There's members in our community who struggle with this, and there's members within our community who have grown out of this behavior. Uh, But please know you're not alone, and you don't have to go through this alone. Uh, We want to support you in finding another way, a better way. Uh, But it might feel, I get it, like there's no chance of healing. Isn't that what this passage is all about? No one could help this man. It's true, but he's not too far for God. He's not so far gone that Jesus won't approach him and heal him. And so if you're struggling, please reach out, take that step, and let us walk alongside you. You see, when we think about this scenario, why would Jesus go there? Why would he take his Jewish disciples to this unclean land? Why pursue this man in this place? Uh, As much as I like, uh, I dislike Anaheim, Saskatchewan, there's something I dislike more. Um, I'm one of those people, like, I just cannot be around someone who's throwing up. And uh, I just can't. Like, if Julia's sick, I, I just, I leave. I just say, good luck. I hope you're alive tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to a hotel. It always goes very well for me. And um, she's the opposite, which has made for interesting moments in our marriage. But uh, this instinctual response, right, hasn't boded well with having children. Uh, a few months ago, just after... Uh, yeah, uh, just after Maggie was born, Ansley got her first stomach through, uh, flu. Yay! Uh, so Julia, she had to be quarantined with Maggie because, you know, Maggie's only a few weeks old. We can't risk her getting the flu, which leaves me to look after Ansley in the middle of the night for six hours as she threw up, and she, she was really cute about it. She's like, no, 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 and it come out her nose, and it's just awful. And, um, yeah, I'm not trying to gross you out. It's really gross, but... Um, Here's the thing. I had to be there, right? Like, I had to be there. I had to overcome this, like, I'm trying not to throw up, but I had to be there. And uh, I didn't hate it. In fact, there was nowhere else in the world you could have paid me to be other than caring for my little girl in that moment. Why? Because I love her. And my love for her is strong enough that I will go to places that are uncomfortable or even unclean to be with her. Jesus, he's going to be found in unclean places, uncomfortable places, places you think that are too far gone, not because he has to be there, but because he wants to be there, because he loves you. Now look at verses 6 through 9. And when this man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Last week, if you remember, the the question at the heart of the passage was, Who is Jesus? But this week we get another question. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And whether it's this man talking or the demons talking or both, 
The central question from last week is answered. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of the Most High God. That much is clear in this interaction, but the focus shifts to the implications. What do you have to do with me? Nothing and everything. The immediate answer, of course, is, is nothing. This isn't Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder singing Ebony and Ivory. You know, this is about good and evil, light and darkness. They have nothing to do with one another. There's no harmony between Jesus and demons. It's oil and water. They repel each other. You know, unlike ebony and ivory, there's no shared likeness. Jesus has nothing to do with them because they're demonic. They're in the unclean realm, and they've rebelled against his authority and reign. That's precisely the issue, and that's exactly why Jesus came, though. And that's why Jesus has everything to do with this man and his many demons. Because Jesus, he came into the world to bring wholeness and life and order. He came to bring uh, justice and freedom and salvation. He came to set things right. He came to remove all the things that separate us and cause dysfunction. Racial tension, societal injustice, the power of sin in our lives, evil spiritual realities, even death. Simply put, Jesus came to heal in the midst of a broken world. But when this man and his many demons see that Jesus has nothing to do with them, yet everything to do with them, it evokes a very strong reaction. Look at verses 10 through 12. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Even though uh, Jesus wants everything to do with this man, he and the demons, they beg for compromise. Can't there be a middle ground? Can't there, you know, just rearrange the living situation a little bit, Jesus? And Mark first emphasizes that he, the man, begged Jesus not to send the demons out of the country. And then it, Mark shows us that they, the demons, say, yeah, okay, don't send us out of the country. Just give us a new home in the pigs. And as this man confronts the idea of an existence without the company of his demons, he fears this will actually be torment. Torment. Look again at verse 7. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. What he has known, the reality he's known, being possessed by demons for however long he's known that reality, has so distorted his perception that the idea of healing is torment. Evil tells him that God doesn't actually have his best interests at heart. This is beautifully demonstrated uh, by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce. It's a fictional story that he wrote about ghosts who are journeying uh, into becoming real people in heaven. And the further they go in, uh, the harder the journey gets. And one ghost in particular has this red lizard on his shoulder and he's constantly tormented by this lizard who's always speaking uh, lies into his ear. And uh, I want to paraphrase uh, just a little bit of their interaction. Uh, the angel said, Would you like me to make the lizard quiet? Of course I would, said the ghost. Well, then I got to kill him. Well, that seems a little drastic, don't you think? It's the only way. Well, give me some time to think this through. There is no time, may I kill him? Well, the lizard isn't all that bad. He's asleep now. May I kill it? Well, you know, maybe he'll gradually die. The gradual process is of no use at all. 
The angel got closer to the ghost, and the ghost began to feel the pain of the truth and cried out, Why are you hurting me now? I never said I wouldn't hurt you. I said I wouldn't kill you. Well, maybe I can get a doctor's opinion first. Now is the deciding factor. Couldn't you have just killed it without asking me? I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. May I have your permission? Then the lizard wakes up, and I want to quote what he says verbatim. Be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word, and that's it. Then you'll be without me forever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'll, you won't be a ghost. You'll only be sort of a ghost, sort of a real man. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are real pleasures now. Uh, not really, but we have dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be good. I'll admit I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. See, the possessed man, like the ghost in Lewis's story, he knows no other life than being possessed with this demon. And to begin to imagine an existence without the company of demons seems like torment, but this is the lie being whispered into his ear. So he asks for a compromise. If you're going to heal me, fine, but at least keep my legion of demons nearby. Verse 13, Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. It's strange. At first, it looks like Jesus was willing to compromise, but that's not the case. Jesus allows the unclean spirits to go into pigs, which to his kosher-observing disciples are unclean animals. The unclean matched with the unclean, and then rushed towards death. This is all a very Jewish way of saying that Jesus is taking care of this unclean business. He's putting it to death. He's cleaning things up. But all of this, it didn't take place in an isolated bubble. Uh, look at verses 14 through 18. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Jesus, he does what nobody can do. He does what no one was able to do. He heals this man. And it's very similar to what the apostles just witnessed in the boat. A storm that's overtaking them. Jesus speaks a word, it's calm, and the result, they were afraid. And now there's this man that no one can help. Jesus speaks a word, heals him, and the result, look at the end of verse 15, they were afraid. You see, when salvation comes into the world, it's not a private affair, affair but a public event. And you would think that this good news would be well-received. But the fear it evokes, it leaves two options before us. The first is that we let go and we cling to Jesus and we let him reorder our lives. And the second is that we refuse to let go of our sense of control and we ask Jesus to go away. And once again, we see begging in this passage. The people of the city, they beg Jesus to leave. What do you have to do with us, Jesus? Leave. Get out of here. Go away. 
And like it was for the demon-possessed man, the idea of God reordering our, our lives, it can seem like torment. Why do they beg Jesus to depart? I think it's because they want to maintain the status quo and they're afraid. Perhaps it was the herdsmen leading the pack. You know, they just suffered the loss of 2,000 pigs. Jesus' little stunt here cost them a great deal. Uh, pig farming could be a lucrative business. Uh, I did a little research. It costs $260 to buy a pig and, and raise it up. And uh, times that by 2,000, you're talking about half a million dollars of upfront costs before you've seen any profit. Now, of course, like, things were different in the ancient world, but that's a lot of capital lost, 2,000 pigs. You see, they're discovering in a very tangible way that Jesus cares more about healing and salvation than he does about their profit. And for them, it's too costly. And we don't know if this loss would have devastated them or would have just been a dent in their pocket. We, we don't know. But let's, for the sake of argument, say that this loss devastated them. The point remains, all they see is the loss and not the gain. They may have lost everything, but it's nothing compared to what they gain. The Son of the Most High God with them. They may have lost everything in a material sense, but they've gained Jesus, and they don't see that. Instead, they beg for him to depart. You see, it's when Jesus frames following him in this way, we start to get a little nervous. Pick up your cross and follow me. Count the cost before you follow me. If you want to find your life, you have to lose your life. All these things make us feel a little nervous. It costs so much. Can't we compromise? And the answer is no. He's Lord. We're not. And if we let him be our Lord, that means parts of our lives have to die. Our demons, let's say, our vices, the selfishness, the ignoring people in need, the pornography. I'm speaking to men and women on this. Objectifying the opposite sex. Holding on to grudges. Drinking in excess. Gossiping. Road rage. Or, or just one more Netflix. But it's not just our demons that he kills. He goes after the subtle evils whispering lies. Relying on politics to save us. Relying on your job or your significant other to give you that feeling of self-worth. Relying on your achievements in athletics or using social media to build up your pride or crush it. Or avoiding conflict altogether or avoiding being known by anyone at all. You see, when Jesus is Lord, it means a whole lot of things. And we get afraid because initially addressing any of the things I just said and many more, we get nervous. Because these things have been how we function in life. These things have been where we've been going for a sense of comfort and security and identity. And these things have ultimately become our functional gods. And even if they haven't been perfect, even if they've cost us a great deal, it's what we know. And we're a lot like C.S. Lewis's ghost with the lizard, probably more than we want to admit. But we don't have to be. Look at verses 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. 
This man, he originally begs for compromise. He begs for a reality that still involves the demonic. And now he's begging to be with Jesus. This is a radical change. The one thing he wants, the one thing he asks, I want to be with you, Jesus. But he's not wanting and just asking, he's begging. You are my joy. You are my greatest desire. You are my greatest satisfaction. You are my life. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. I want nothing more than to be with you. But why? I mean, why? What accounts for such a drastic change? If you've been to the doctor and they heal you, you don't beg to be with that doctor for the rest of their life. You know, if, it, if you've been in a court of law and, and they acquit you from whatever it was you were doing on 420, you know, uh, you don't beg to be with that judge for the rest of your life. Why this response? He's seen Christ. He's seen Christ. Now, it may have been under the influence of the demonic, but he knows that this is the holy son of God. He knows who's standing before him. He knows that because of who he was, he deserved death. He should have been thrown over the, the, the cliff. And yet, the Holy Son of God showed him mercy. He's been gripped by the mercy of Jesus. Jesus showed him mercy. Biblical scholar, Dr. Anne Reese, she defines mercy this way. Mercy is that which meets people at their point of need. Mercy is that which meets people at their point of need. In his greatest need, no one could help him. This man was helpless, and he was possessed. He was tormented, and he initially believes that all Jesus wants to do is torment him. Torment is all he's known, after all. But Jesus came to the Gerasenes, the text shows us, for no other reason than to meet this man at his point of need. Jesus, he frees him from evil. He heals him and makes him whole. He gives him a sound mind and restores life to him. In other words, Jesus saves this man through and through. And Jesus, he meets us in our point of need. And he does what nobody else can. We begin to find satisfaction in him instead of our vices. And he speaks much needed truth into our hungry souls. So we're no longer looking to external markers for our worth. So it doesn't matter if your point of need is big or small. Jesus shows us mercy, but in order to show us mercy, he was the one who was tormented. On the way to the cross, he was the one who was abandoned and humiliated, his body lacerated, he was spat upon and mocked. You know, while hanging on the cross, he was ridiculed and his body was torn apart. He experienced utter anguish and torment so that he might show us mercy. St. Jerome of the 4th century suggests that uh, the destruction of the pigs was necessary to show that one soul saved is priceless. But the part that's hard to get our heads and hearts around is this. The, even just the prospect of the cross caused Jesus great anguish and torment. And yet he still went. The truth is there was no other place he wanted to be, that he was willing to go even there for the sake of humanity, but not humanity abstractly, for the sake of you. Jim or Clara or Lawrence or uh, Matt. He went there, and he paid that price to meet us in our greatest need. 
Yes, the need for our sins to be washed away, the need for us to be reconciled to God and no longer separated, the need for us to have an enduring security and comfort in him, the need for us to have freedom from the things that have been binding us, to be seen, to be loved, to be chosen, all of these needs. But how can one person possibly meet all of these needs? It's because he's what we need. St. Augustine, my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And when this sinks in, when this really gets into your heart, when it really gets into your bones or your lungs, the fiber of your being, our greatest desire is to be with Jesus, the one who meets us in our deepest needs. You see, it gets into this healed man's life in a profound way, and he begs to be with Jesus. He begs to be with Jesus. And there's Mark and irony here. He in a way, this demon-possessed healed man uh, becomes the model apostle. If you remember in chapter 3, when Jesus called the apostles, he called them for what? One, that they might be with him. Two, that he might send them out. What happens here? This man begs to be with Jesus, and what does Jesus say? No, you can't be with me. You will be with me forever, but I'm going to send you out to proclaim my mercy. This man could be, arguably be the first actual apostle in Mark's gospel. You see, he doesn't have all the answers. He's encountered the Holy Son of God, though, and he's encountered mercy, and that is enough. As D.T. Niles puts it, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. But you can't go and proclaim about the mercy of Jesus if you don't know it. And how do you know if you've experienced it? Well, is your greatest desire to be with Jesus. If you've been following him for a while, here's, here's a litmus test. Are you more caught up in what you do for Jesus or what you want to do for Jesus or what you want him to do for you than a pure desire simply to be with him? Have you ever longed just to be with him? Is your vision of eternity big enough that dwelling in the glory of God forever is satisfactory? Or, if heaven was just you restored with all your friends, no sin, suffering, evil, or death, but Jesus was nowhere to be found, would you still like that vision? Has he become your greatest desire? Is the one thing you would ask to be with Jesus? And I think many of us are feeling pressure at this point, saying, I don't know. My heart is conflicted. My heart is torn. Sometimes... And sometimes I'm still wrestling, and there's room for that. But this should be our prayer. Jesus, may the one thing we ask for be you. May the one thing we desire be you in all and every circumstance. And the way we get there is by encountering his mercy, which means we have to reject the cultural notion that we don't look at brokenness or sin. It's actually by looking at those very things and seeing that God shows us mercy even in our shame, that all of a sudden our greatest desire will be to be with Jesus. If you've never followed Jesus, I want you to know that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what questions you may still have, the Holy Son of God is alive, is willing to show you mercy. Not because he has to, but because he loves you. There's no place he wouldn't go to find you.
Do you know his mercy? Is your one desire to be with him?